Hello and welcome to Epoch's number 107, where we shall be talking about the life and times of Lenin. And I am joined by uh, uh, the wonderful Apostolic Majesty, uh, a human font of knowledge. How are you, AM? I am on good form. Thank you very much for having me back to talk about Lenin. No, no, it's uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Um, always, always happy to have a conversation with you because uh, you always know so much more than I do. So uh, I'll, I'll be picking your brain <laughs> if that's all right. Um, um, so yeah, Lenin. I mean, it's a massive life, isn't it? With these epochs, um, it's sort of uh, a, a, it's a blessing in disguise, a poison chalice that we only get something like an hour and a half. So with the life of Lenin, there's so much you could be could say. Um, that we'll have to whisk through it relatively quickly. I mean, obviously, the highlight is the Russian Revolution, isn't it, 1917? But there's so much more to the man, to his life, to his politics. Um, but I guess we'll just do it chronologically, if that's all right. So just start off with his family and his sort of very early life. Um, I, I suppose one of the things you tell me, um, every, most people know, if you know anything really about Lenin, is the um, the interesting fact that he wasn't proletarian <laughs> He wasn't poor. He wasn't peasant. He wasn't even a kulak, was he? He was from relatively wealthy. I mean, I wouldn't say were, his family were rolling in money, but they were sort of firmly middle class. Tell me how, what, what your take is on that. His father was a nobody, but his mother's side were, they, they had a big house, didn't they? And servants and all that sort of thing, no? Um, I don't really think it's surprising at all. I mean, I've always associated most... Uh, prominent left-wing movements has been comprised almost entirely of uh, bourgeois types. Mm -hmm. um, I've always considered it to be a bourgeois movement mm. which claims to represent the working class as opposed to genuinely be comprised of the working class. But to um, answer your question specifically, um, his father was one, uh, he wasn't born Lenin, Lenin was a, um, a nom de guerre, a, a pseudonym. Uh, his birth name was uh, Vladimir Ilyich Ilyanov. And his father was one Ilya Nika, um, Nikolaevich Ulyanov, uh, who was quite prominent. Um, he was the uh, uh, superintendent or the inspector for uh, public schools in Simbiersk, um, which was a, a region sort of between what is later become Stalingrad and Kazan in the uh, in the Volga region. And, Would you um, characterize that as a backwater? Am I going too far to say that? I, I wouldn't necessarily consider it a backwater. I mean, we're not talking about Siberia here. <laughs> um, you know, it's obviously in Russia. Russia is such a large country, but uh, I, I suppose there is, you know, some proximity towards Moscow. But uh, as far as, you know, it's very removed from St. Petersburg, which during the um, imperial era was, was of course, the uh, capital of the Russian Empire, um, but not a very prominent region, no. But um his father was at least significant within that particular governorate, so I, I wouldn't write him off. Indeed, um, Lenin's ancestry is quite quite sort of uh, varied. I mean, you have some Jewish ancestry, some vulgar German ancestry. I mean, that's only really to be expected because the region just south of Symbiosk, um would later during the Soviet Union actually become the uh, vulgar German Republic. Um, and its capital would later be renamed Engels, of course, after Friedrich Engels, um, Marx's longtime collaborator. So uh, you can say a cosmopolitan and bourgeois background for Lenin. Would you say that that's more, it's closer to sort of Central Asia than it is sort of the European side of Russia? Again, am I overstating that? Because I know in Russia that they're you know, so massive, obviously, all the way out to the Pacific. But there is sort of a fairly, well, I think 
uh, fairly well-defined European end of Russia. Would you say Lenin's sort of not of that? Or, 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 or would you say he is more? I think uh, geographically, Symbiosk is, of course, I wouldn't say relatively close, but uh, nearish to the borders of modern-day Kazakhstan, right, right, and right. Um, all of the stans, of course, were comprised of the you know were within the Russian Empire and later the Soviet Union. But it is still in the core mm. of uh, of uh, Russia as it is today. And I think, despite being you know geographically sort of close to Kazakhstan and the Urals, um, it should also be noted that. Because of the Volga German Association, you can say that this region was actually rather cosmopolitan in the same way that St. Petersburg was, despite being a seemingly rather rural backwater. Mm. Um, of course, if you go south, you uh, you have Kalmyks who are of Mongolian descent. You have the uh, uh, the various Cossack hosts. Then, of course, into the south, you have the Ossetians, and you have the remnants of the Circassians, most of whom have moved into Turkey, and of course the uh, Caucasian. Um, nations which will briefly become independent during the Russian Revolution, only to be reincorporated forcefully back into the Soviet Union. So, um, I mean, Russia is, it's a sort of a misnomer to consider Russia as in any way ethnically homogenous. Mm. Uh, Russia had has today a heterogeneous population. Indeed, that was amplified during the Imperial Russian um, era. Yeah, we're talking we're talking a landmass which goes from Warsaw in the west to Kolmia uh, in the east. I mean, it's um, it was one sixth of the world's total landmass was the Russian Empire during this time. But I think we're almost going off track. If we're yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, just in my mind, that, that, that as a, an Englishman from the born and bred in home counties, that just feels like more Central Asia than Europe. But in, anyway, one thing just before we move on from his family. I just wanted to try and pin down. Uh, well, I think it's really interesting to say that sort of leftism or socialism is quite often um, sort of more middle class intellectuals than is actually the the, the working man. Obviously, uh, someone like Orwell talks about that quite well in something like the Road to Wigan Pier. Um, Stalin would be uh, an exception to that, being being brought up in real poverty. But yeah, Lenin, um, they had it was brought up later, sort of during his political life, saying, "Wait a minute, aren't you?" aren't you more than a kulak yourself? And he just said, yeah, well, basically just brush it off. Just saying, yeah, well, whatever. It is what it is. I'm the leader of the party, so deal with it, sort of thing. Um, <laughs> but I suppose he did have a good education, though, didn't he? They, uh, relatively good. I mean, he was sent to a, a, quite a, a good school and passed out with flying colours. That's correct, isn't it? Well, in the same year that he completed his studies and then went off to the University of Kazan to study law, uh, this is 1887. Uh, his brother, older brother, Alexander Ulyanov, tried to assassinate the then Tsar Alexander III. So we're talking about a, uh, a family with a infamous revolutionary association. And of course, that incident um, scandalized the family because it was such a, uh, a public fall from grace, so to speak. And in many ways, you can say it actually um, created a bit of... Um, notoriety for Lenin, and you can say um, fame within various left-wing revolutionary movements due to his association with the the hero who mm -hmm. attempted to um, assassinate the the evil, repressive, reactionary Alexander III. Um, but it's not a sort of immediate process where 
it's rather simple to look at the psychology and say the execution of his brother leads to him becoming a revolutionary agitator. But um, his intellectual experience goes through various phases. So at the University of Kazan, he is essentially censured for nascent political agitation um, when he becomes associated with various left-wing councils. Um, and he's actually exiled um, during this time to a place called uh, Kokushkino. However, it's during this time also that he's exposed to the ideas of uh, uh, Fedor Isiev and Marxist literature in particular. And you can say the only person who's trying to rescue him during this time is his mother, uh, Maria Ulyanov, who's already lost one son to uh, revolutionary agitation. And um, she attempts to physically move Lenin away from these sources of potential uh, radicalization, even wanting to take him back to a simple life as a farmer very briefly. Of course, this doesn't work very well. Lenin escapes the clutches of his mother, goes to Samara, joins various uh, discussion circles. And by this time, he's become fully immersed in Russian Marxism and will later pen his own articles. Um, mm. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> well, one thing I just wanted to ask, just uh, quickly backtrack ever so quickly on is is his brother again, because I think that is a, a big thing. I don't want to get too much into sort of armchair psychology. You know, I'm not a psychologist, but um, he was thought of as well. You said described him as a hero or heroic on some level, but like a martyr for the cause or something. So just to let people know, there was an assassination of. Uh, uh, one of the czars, two czars before Nicholas II. Uh, what was it? Was it Alexander the First? Isn't it? Uh, sorry, Alexander, Alexander the, the second. second. Sorry, that's sorry, Alexander the Second, who was su successfully blown up and killed, um, but not by Lenin's brother personally. But Lenin's brother was arrested, tried, and executed for being in on that plot. Right. That's that's the that's the overview. That's the takeaway, isn't it? Um, so. Sorry, could you repeat that? Um, just saying that um, Alexander II was killed, although yes. not personally by Lenin's elder brother. No, no, no. This Lenin's is a elder brother was this is put a on trial for um, it. This is a, this is a different plot. Um, the assassination of Alexander II was carried out by a group called the Narodnya Volya, which means the People's Will, in 1881. Lenin's brother a, not in that organisation? No, I thought he was in there. Uh, oh, okay. I've got this well, uh, the, the assassination by, uh, I can't remember exactly what organisation um, Lenin's brother was a member of, okay. but after 1881, members of the Narodnya Volya were systematically hunted down and um, uh, sent to Siberia, if not executed. Indeed, this is the time where uh, Russia is amping up their uh, uh, secret police and their security against left-wing terrorism, which is, of course, the Okhrana. But Alexander Ulyanov was implicated in an attempt to assassinate the son of Alexander II, Tsar Alexander III, in 1887. Um, of course, he, he was the father of Nicholas II. Yeah, yeah. So actually, they're years apart, aren't they? They're years apart. Uh, I had that wrong in my mind. I think I've said on a recording somewhere else. I've, I've, yeah, I've got that wrong in my mind. You're absolutely right. There was one, uh, one of the more famous plots to try and kill uh, Alexander the Third was to blow up the train he was in. And isn't there sort of a, uh, a almost a folk story of him holding up? the half-destroyed train so that his family could escape. Was, yes, did so that, did Lenin's brother have anything to do with that one? Uh, that, that wasn't actually an assassination attempt. Oh, okay. That was um, that was a screw-up <laughs> by the uh, the controller of transport um, who was forcing the train to go too fast, effectively, so it derailed. But during that particular situation, um, 
Alexander III was known as essentially being a giant. So he held up the collapsing train carriage and allowed the Romanov family to escape, um, essentially saving his family's life. But of course, I think this had long-term implications because he died very young in his 40s in the year um, 1894, leading to a uh, an inexperienced Tsar Nicholas II to uh, take the reins of the autocracy. But so in the end, the upshot is, is that Lenin's elder brother was tried for, well, I don't know, treason, sedition, um, you know, just being uh, uh, subversive and executed. Um, and so I want, I want to ask you, what extent do you think Lenin put his elder brother on a pedestal? Because I think there's two contradictory things or two conflicting ideas that one, he was a martyr, a hero in, on some level, and that Lenin did put him on a pedestal in some on some level, but also... Lenin, sort of at the time and all the way through his adulthood, also thought his brother was foolish on some level for for doing that and throwing his own life away, and he was just uh, on the wrong political track in all sorts of ways. So I wonder what your feelings are. What do you think? How do you think Lenin felt about his older brother and and his execution? Well, by the time he became involved in serious revolutionary activity in St. Petersburg, I think his mind was made up on to as to what his brother's legacy represented. Um, there is an apocryphal statement by Lenin, uh, which claims essentially that what his brother's attempted assassination of Alexander III represented was the wrong way in politics. Um, that as with the assassination of Alexander II, which I think is very important you brought up, what did the assassination of Alexander II lead to? A more reactionary czar and the disillusion of most of the left-wing agitating groups during that time. So these symbolic gestures, the idea that the assassination of the czar would simply bring about this utopian society, this post-Zara society, I believe Lenin was intelligent enough. And I do need to emphasize here that Lenin really did have an exemplary intellect to be able to understand these things and had a capacity for, organ for developing structures of organization and logistics, which enabled him to see a means of attaining power, not simply of removing the existing power structure. I mean, if you go down this sort of uh, line of thinking, in order to really remove the Romanos from power, you would need to systematically murder all of them in quick succession, uh, which, given how many Romanovs there are, is rather impossible. No matter how many you assassinate, you'll be able to pin one grand duke or one prince who can fill that role. And even if you get rid of all of them, um, a military man would be able to come in and say, for example, like a Kolchak later on and assert some sort of right-wing government even then. So I think Lenin was cognizant of all of this. And you can say that this later develops into his idea that rather than opting for these, you can say, suicidal um, demonstrations of antipathy towards the Tsarist government. One needs to have a program for the acquisition of political power, mm -hmm. and therefore one needs to represent a government-in-waiting, which he successfully creates. Because if you look at the early life of Lenin and you look at the Russian Revolution, what is remarkable is how um, haphazard it was, how he was able to bring himself into power. I think it's less remarkable how he was able to attain power, but that he was able to keep it effectively, given that so many 
governments had come into power after the fall of Tsar Nicholas II in early 1917 and had fallen very quickly or destabilized effectively. Um, and this is, you could say, the beginning of this, the establishment or the creation in his mind of a hard political program and which organizations were essentially going to help him to rise to power and which organizations would be a detriment to that. Because you have to think, what he represented by the sort of the turn of the 20th century was a very cosmopolitan European form of socialism, which was very alien to the Russian psyche at this point. Most Russian left-wing thought as of then was tending towards anarchism or towards the almost utopian ideas associated with agrarian reform. The idea that is the peasant community, the village, that represents the real heart of Russia. So it's basically a contest between the local center and the centralizing czarist government. And in this this idea of essentially it's the Nonodniks, the people's friend, it is the peasant who represents the soul of Russia, not the proletariat. Even though there had been an attempt during the reign of Alexander III to really kickstart Russia's industrialization, Russia's industrialization by the turn of the 20th century was relegated to a few key cities, Kiev, Kharkov, Moscow, St. Petersburg. And so the idea that the proletariat in the European sense, the urban working unskilled laboring classes could represent a sort of revolutionary class in Russia almost seemed preposterous. But that was the Marxist model which had been imported into Russia, which Lenin was now adopting. Mm, mm. He very much, I think, uh, leaned towards you know the urban proletariat rather than the peasant. The peasants can come along later. They're in the way, if anything. And yeah, that's Marx's, because it's easy to forget that Marx's sort of 19th, firmly, not sort of mid-19th century, uh, talking about looking at Britain and Germany. He's not looking at rural... Russia when he's writing his his stuff. Um, but one one quick thing I wanted to uh, again just track back ever so quickly about this idea of that if you were to do away with the czarist regime, you would need something in its place. And now it sounds like stating the the bleeding obvious, doesn't it? But from Julius Caesar to Saddam Hussein, how many times have regimes been? You just lop off the head of a regime, just assassinate the head of state, and expect everything to fall into line. And and it hardly ever does. It's very rare it does, or you'd just be lucky if it did. Whereas Lenin was clever enough to sort of um, understand that you know it would need more than that um, if he was going to have any realistic chance of success. You said in a in an interesting um, conversation you had with Dr. Parvini um, about how it's, you can't deny that Lenin was a genius. I mean, a, a, a perverse, evil genius. But nevertheless, you know, people talk about accounts of the, of, of the time that he had a his force of intellect, his force of will, his force of character was almost overbearing. You couldn't deny it. Um, I, I think that's interesting. It seems to be he seems to be one of those people in history that has that from a very early age, like all of his adulthood. It's not like he came into his own in his forties or something. It seems like he had it from very early on. Do you think that's fair? When we're talk, when I'm talking about um, Lenin and his experiences. In the aftermath of his brother's execution, we're talking about an 18-year-old Lenin. This 18-year-old Lenin, of course, he comes and begins major revolutionary agitation. Um, you know, going to St. Petersburg, joining revolutionary cells, beginning what would later become the nascent Russian Social Democratic Party. Um, 
and beginning to try to radicalize the proletariat, radicalize workers and form uh, international coalitions with other left-wing parties. He's doing this in his early 1920s. So all I see with Lenin is a political program and an evolution with Lenin. I don't see any sort of dramatic about turns. I mean, he's sort of He's very pragmatic mm -hmm. and he's mm -hmm. consistent in his pragmatism, but you can say he's somewhat flexible in his ideology. I would say the pervading idea of Lenin is power, power acquisition and power maintenance. And in this case, democratic socialism or Marxism, and then adding the suffix Marxism Leninism, becomes a program for total political power, total um, subordination of the economy and the Russian state to the Communist Party, and by extension, the vanguard who leads the Communist Party, which of course is a rather revolutionary prospect within Marxism-Leninism itself, and why it is called Marxism-Leninism. You could say in contrast to cultural Marxism or Fabian socialism or democratic socialism or whatever, it's sort of a, um, a misnomer that the party he would later um, split into Bolshevik and Menshevik was called the Social Democratic Party. And the Social Revolutionary Party, his main left-wing opposition in Russia, was far more beholden to the Narodniks and agrarian socialism and looking to the peasantry as a way of essentially bringing down the Tsar or at least establishing some form of constitutional monarchy. In this sense, Lenin was both anathema to Russia, but he was also anathema to Marx and Leninism because Oh, sorry, Marxism, rough. <laughs> because um, what Marxism is, it's it's a it's a teleological way of looking at history effectively and looking at power relations between classes, rather than a actionable political program. Especially in the nineteenth century, the idea is that the proletariat will essentially inherit the earth. The bourgeois society has come to replace the feudal society pre the French Revolution. And due to the inherent complicate the inherent contradictions within bourgeois capitalist society, the proletariat, the unskilled laboring classes, who have been alienated from their labor and the um the result essentially, the fruits of their labors, will come to power and they will effectively become the end point in history. They will establish a socialist system, which will then wither away to become a communist system. But as you can probably tell from me saying this, this is actually rather wishy-washy. And this basically states that this will happen, but not necessarily how it will happen. <laughs> And how it will take force, and of course, just mentioning this as well, um, who are, as you mentioned, who are the most advanced uh, capitalist societies in the world at this time? Britain, France, Germany, certainly not Russia. Russia, by all accounts, is in Marx's sort of um, assessment, feudal with aspects of capitalist society which are simply burgeoning at this time in localized little pockets. So this is, you can say, why Lenin is so remarkable in the sense that he is able to speed up the process of the proletarian revolution in an area which should have been completely hostile to this idea of a proletarian revolution. And this is this fundamental argument is the split, but not just between uh, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, but how you can say Lenin becomes detached from a lot of European Marxist movements. So when he's writing what is to be done in 1898, 
most of his vitriol is directed at a fellow socialist in Germany, um, one Edvard Bernstein, uh, who is essentially saying that we can win power through electoral means. We should use the Reichstag in Germany, form a majority government, and then establish a socialist democratic government where socialist reforms can be brought in peacefully. Lenin sees this as contamination within the idea of Marxism-Leninism. He sees this as bourgeois collaboration or compromise. So the constant thought within Lenin isn't just achieving power through compromise, it's imposing a system of power um, using any means necessary without the necessity of compromise. And this is very much sort of um, outlined in his refutations of Fabianism and his desire to establish an uncompromising, politically Marxist um, orthodox, uh, a Marxist orthodoxy, which orients around the idea of the vanguard, a small group of people who are professional revolutionaries who will represent the proletariat, establish the dictatorship of the proletariat, and bring about socialism. And this idea is what effectively divides the. Uh, famous party conference of the Russian Social Democratic Party in 1903, which creates the divisions between Menshevik and Bolshevik. The Menshevik faction, led by his former comrade, Julius Martov, um, who advocates for this traditional Marxist idea of a mass social movement, a class movement that will simply arise as a result of the changing conditions within Russia itself, bowing down to this idea that the revolution is inevitable. So all we need to do is raise the political consciousness of the people, essentially. Whereas Lenin is the complete opposite of that. We need to achieve power by any means, including explicitly the assassination of the Tsar mm -hmm. and the replacement of the Tsarist government with a new political system, which is based around a small elite as opposed to a mass movement. And any means justifies the ends. Is it right that Lenin himself um, coined the Menshevik-Bolshevik uh, naming convention? Is that, am I right thinking that? Well, uh, he was cognizant of uh, what uh, Bolsheviki means, but uh, Bolshevik just means the majoritarian faction, yeah, majority as opposed minority. to the Menshevik, which obviously means the minoritarian faction. Um, and, and of course, I think the irony is actually the Mensheviks were the majority mm -hmm. faction. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the statement of Bolshevik was actually a propaganda statement rather than anything else. You know, we represent the majority. We are the um, the true power within the party, when in reality, Lenin spends the next 10 years desperately trying to prove that he is relevant within his own party, let alone within Russia. Mm. And he spends most of this time, of course, in exile. <laughs> so um, you can say that despite his desire to achieve power by any means, I, I mean, the famous uh, quote from him, of course, is... Um, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs in terms of justifying power, power acquisition by any means. Mm. But from 1903, really up until 1917, um, he is almost completely irrelevant um, in the grand sort of political sort of stage, which I find really rather remarkable. Very I often mean, not in Russia, right? Very often not in Russia. I mean, he briefly returns to St. Petersburg during the 1905 Russian Revolution, where it looks as if, just very briefly, um, with the, the mutiny of the uh, the Kronstadt sailors and the Navy, the disaster of the Russo-Japanese War, the sinking of the Baltic fleet at the Battle of Tsushima, 
and the Bloody Sunday Massacre, it looks like on all fronts, the Russian government is on the verge of collapse and the Tsar is forced to make concessions, which ends officially ends the idea of um, autocracy within Russia and establishes a system of provisional government. In fact, it's not really Lenin who is making the grand um, sort of revolutionary moves during the 1905 revolution. It's Trotsky. Trotsky, who was brought on as a as an ally of Lenin, and then Trotsky, who would betray Lenin and become a leading light of the Menshevik movement rather than the Bolshevik movement. But it is really Trotsky who's leading the agitation movement, who's a editor of the Russian Gazette, which is um, incentivizing um, revolutionary agitation within the capital. And um, between 1905 and 1906, it really looks like it's going to be touch and go. But of course, the organizational strength of the Bolshevik party hasn't been built up at this point. And of course, when the Bolsheviks do take power, it's after all the other organizations have effectively failed to maintain power. Mm -hmm. So because the Tsar maintains the government in 1905-1906, and then we see a series of reforms and the competent minister, Peter Stolipin, brought in, and again, utilizing the peasantry against these various left-wing movements, they're called the Black Hundreds. The government of the Tsar is able to hold on to power, and Lenin becomes more irrelevant than ever. In fact, mm. you can say Lenin's desperation, one of the sort of greatest instances of this, is when the second Duma is called, when there are elections in 1907, he abandons his position of boycotting elections to try and influence the new Russian constitutional government. And of course, when this election shows that social revolutionaries, Bolsheviks, and all manner of left-wing parties um, have actually have an actual say, um, a sway over the um, the legislative chamber of the Russian Empire. What does the Tsar do? He simply dissolves it and calls new elections and changes the voting system. <laughs> so you can say that Lenin's brief flirtation with popular democratic politics, if anything, it just hardens his view that we cannot achieve power through this means. We have to achieve power another way. Mm. And of course, you can say, again, the desperation of his organization and not resulting to any sort of legal means of attaining power. How does the party stay afloat? Where does it get funds during this time? Um, robbing banks. Right. Yeah, getting his, getting his, uh, his Georgian to rob some banks for him. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.